Johnson. He's a distinguished uh, tech com guru, and he has a very popular website. I'd rather be writing, and I'm taking a, a, a tutorial on um, API documentation on his site. It's very popular. Oh, Lauren is here as well. Hi, Lauren. So you go ahead, Tom. Okay. All right. Um, just to give a little background about myself uh, so you have an idea who's talking. Uh, I live in Silicon Valley, which is uh, San Jose area of California. I work at Amazon Lab 126. This is uh, the part of Amazon that does things like the Amazon Echo or Fire TV or Kindle, the devices side of things. Uh, my focus is on developer documentation. I love building sites with tools like Jekyll, uh, static site generator, and playing around with different um, strategies for doc websites. I have a creative writing background. I have four daughters, and I am a basketball uh, fan. All right. Um, if you don't have the link to the slides, you can follow along at uh, the URL listed here. I'm assuming everybody can see my screen. If not, just go ahead and... Uh, let me know. I am recording this, so it'll be available uh, if you miss it as well. All right. One thing to note about the slides. Uh, you'll notice that there are little arrows in the, in the side. And here's how that works. Basically, uh, you can go right or you can go down. Uh, pretty much, I go down when I'm drilling into a principle, and I move right when I'm going on to the next slide. So that's one feature to keep in mind. All right, let me start out by talking a little bit about uh, this topic and what we're going to talk about. Um, uh, the, the title is User-Centered Design Principles for Organizing Documentation. And here's how I started kind of getting into this topic. Um, I was reading this book uh, on user-centered design, and I've also done some previous stuff in usability labs. Let me come back to this slide here. In fact, this picture is from a, uh, oh, maybe this is just a sample generic usability lab, but I worked at a previous company that had a lab that looked very similar. And basically, you have two-way glass where you can observe users and see what they do. And we had a usability team that would kind of uh, test out applications, and I said, hey, will you also test out the documentation? I'd love to see uh, what the result is, right? Get to see a user actually use your documentation. Well, these, uh, these usability sessions were uh, amazingly exciting and frustrating at the same time, and we, we gathered some insights like, hey, advanced users, they really don't like video, but novice users, they love video, they'll watch it several times, and they'll still not understand where to click, but they like that medium. And, and we gathered some other things, too, about, about how people interact with help. But if you were to kind of restrict yourself to only um, using those, those insights that you would gain from your own usability testing, you'd certainly be at a disadvantage because... Uh, Nobody has time for this, right? It's like a rare opportunity that you would ever get to, to do this in a, in a usability lab unless you work for a really cool company that has a special emphasis on usability. But fortunately, there are usability gurus who have already done tons of research about usability. And there's one book in particular that I was checking out that had great information. It's called 
Universal Principles of Design, and you can find it on Kindle or Amazon or any of these places. Uh, and what's different about this book is that it's it's a, a broad kind of survey of more than 125 different general usability design techniques or design techniques uh, that are that's going to make your document no, well. Sorry, let me back that up. That's going to make your product, not necessarily documentation product, but that will make your product much more uh, design friendly. That will make it user centered. As so I read through this book and picked out what I thought were relevant design principles relating to documentation and technical writing, um, specifically around organizing content. I have uh, more more details on like how to write content, how to create it, you know, uh, keeping things readable, simple, but that's another topic. Uh, this time I want to focus just on how you organize it. Where do you put it in a way that's going to maximize the user's ability to find it and and make use of it. So these are the 10 principles or so that uh, I want to go through. Modularity, hierarchy, Five hat racks, and these are these are the terms that are actually used in the in the book. Uh, progressive disclosure, entry point, desire line, wayfinding, immersion, consistency, and forgiveness. So they're not really in any particular order here, but um, the way that I like to use these is to think of these as a, as kind of a rubric for assessing documentation. Does your documentation uh, stack up with these design principles. Uh, it's a great way to to look at things. I, I gave a presentation to a company back east a, a couple of months ago, and how I approached it was I wanted to see their documentation site, and I looked through it, uh, checking how they kind of align with these different principles. So uh, some of these principles may seem somewhat simple, easy, but when you look at how they actually apply to your help, that's where things start to get interesting. Obviously, I can't do that as much since everybody probably works for different companies and so forth, but hopefully you can uh, apply these. All right, so let's jump into number one, modularity. Uh, and actually, before I jump in here, let me let me just, uh, peri I'll periodically check the chat to see if there are any questions okay and uh, and I'll then I'll proceed but feel free to jump in here with the chat window or if you want through audio and I'd be happy to stop uh, you don't have to wait until the end okay modularity break up content into independent topics that can be viewed understood and updated independent of the whole a topic or chunk should not be so interconnected with the whole that it cannot stand on its own. Now, I've rephrased these from the book, but I mostly kind of summarized them and tried to relate them more to documentation. This is a principle we're all familiar with. This is topic-based writing 101, right? This is the idea that uh, your content should be able to be a little individual part that a user can jump into without having to start from scratch at the beginning of a giant manual. Uh, this idea started as far back as John Carroll in, in his research on minimalism, which he published in the Nuremberg Funnel. His strategy for implementing topic-based authoring was 
you can just read this read the sections about the tasks you want to do you don't have to read the whole manual you just pick out chapter 5 or chapter 12 and go for it and I guess that was a revolutionary idea at the time uh, and, and now it's almost seen as, as tech writing 101 uh, modularity sounds great but things do often go wrong as simple as it sounds and you get into a giant train wreck in a couple of different ways. First, uh, writers often assume that building blocks are the same as presentation. And here I'm mostly speaking about people working in DITA models where they have content chunked out into task, uh, uh, concept, reference, and these are individual components. And then when they publish their content, they're like, great, I've got all my concepts in separate concept files. Each task is in its own task file. And, and they don't really realize that, that you don't actually have to have a one-to-one -one mapping between these building blocks of a concept, task, and reference and the presentation. Uh, and what happens is you end up with a million tiny little topics that are uh, just kind of, they fragment the whole information experience and send readers pinballing throughout your help. Um, so those individual building blocks like Legos can be com combined into uh, more of a reader-friendly display. Another way that uh, modularity goes wrong is if somebody starts in a print document and decides to move it online by automatically splitting it at every heading two tag, for example. And then what you end up with is what Mark Baker calls Frankenbooks. A Frankenbook is organized neither for linear reading nor for random access. No matter where you land in it, you're in the middle of a maze with buttons to move up, down, sideways, but no means of finding the end of any thread or narrative, great or small. Every page is page 297, and none of them answer your questions. So, uh, yeah, this is, this is modularity gone wrong, right, where you... You, you no longer can uh, access uh, a page and get meaning from that standalone component independent of reading and accessing the whole thing. And this is a, con this is a mantra that he's really driven home in a lot of different ways. And uh, he, he summarizes it as every page is page one, where you just assume that the reader can hit it at any point. And what does that mean? If a reader can hit it at any point, then your topics... They're going to be a little bit more thorough, comprehensive, no, no doubt longer. This is a, uh, a screenshot from how to install WordPress, and it's kind of a monster, actually. It's like they, they cover how to install WordPress on every operating system. They cover all the uh, snafus you can encounter, troubleshooting. But it's very self-contained, and wikis lend themselves to this style, these, these self-contained articles. Um, and that's really what you sort of end up with with, uh, with modularity is you have more of article type type help instead of just these little tiny snippets uh, that, that, that act as a page. Now, obviously, you can't have these monster pages. Uh, so let's say you have a sequence of six or seven steps. You can build nice context at the top. Here's an example where you've got a clear workflow and you're guiding the user throughout. So even though you, you don't have all the, all the, the uh, steps jammed into one master long page, you've provided a way that weaves them together in a way that helps the user. Uh, you can also provide context at the end um, so that a user who 
hits that endpoint has some next steps. You could have direct links or you can have some widget like this that shows you where to go next. But this is a way of uh, kind of balancing the needs of modularity and the limits of sanity with the length of a topic. So as some best practices for keeping your content modular, make topics meaningful enough to stand on their own. Don't be afraid to make long topics. Assume the users might actually be starting out on that particular page. And if they were, what context would they need? What prerequisites, assumptions are going to be necessary and provide those. So that's design principle one in organizing your content. Make it modular. Let's move on to number two, hierarchy. A hierarchical outline of the content with parent and child items organized in trees helps users both understand and visualize complex information. Hierarchies that are too complex or which hide parent-child displays fail to communicate. Find a balance that allows users to take in the hierarchy at a glance in a meaningful way. Now, one sort of uh, idea that I think is false and misrepresents the every page is page one uh, strategy is that you could suddenly do away with your, your sidebar navigation that would, that would contain like table of contents through your help document. Um, that's not necessarily the case. There is meaning in hierarchy. In, in a book called uh, Designing Web Navigation, James Kalbach, a usability guy, says, navigation provides a narrative for people to follow on the web. And when you have a hierarchical list of doc items in a tree form with parent and child items, that expresses meaning about those items. A hierarchy literally is uh, grouping content that's sub-elements under larger elements. So right away, the user understands that if you've got content grouped under an item, it must mean that it's uh, part of that larger item, but smaller components or additional detail. And through these, these parent-child sort of relationships in a hierarchy, the user can, can get some basic meaning about the whole shape of your help content. This is definitely not something you want to disregard. If you take away the hierarchy of your help, the hierarchical representation, the navigation sidebar, ultimately, and just go with a completely flat model where a user just lands on a page and there's no, there's no like sidebar that lists the other pages in that documentation collection, you can kind of end up with a disaster. While it may work with one-off knowledge-based type articles, when a user is trying to go through help for an entire system, configuring something complex that involves multiple topics, uh, sequential, uh, that sort of flat approach, KB approach, really doesn't, doesn't work. Uh, a good example of hierarchy. Um, all right, hey, I just saw a question pop in there. What about mini TOCs? We'll get into that in just a minute. Um, I think, maybe not. Why don't we address it now? So somebody asks, let me make sure I captured it all. Mini TOCs. Uh, yeah, I think a mini TOC is a, a, a table of contents within the topic itself. So underneath your heading, it lists all the headings on the page. I think that is definitely a good thing as well. I, I don't think I specifically call it out, but definitely... I think it's, it feeds into the same principle of hierarchy and providing information at a glance that's consumable. 
Okay, uh, so here's a good example of hierarchy. This is from a page in, in Google's help. And if you look on the left, you'll see that they've got some clear groupings of content, and it's not so massive that you get overwhelmed. It's pretty short. Uh, they have specifically selected out only a subset of the items of, out of something that might be much, much larger. I think in the old days um, of TriPane Web Help, it used to be that like your your sidebar contained every single every single file in your help system, and it would be this massive massive uh, um, sidebar that that just was too daunting. And I'll get into into that more later. But basically, you want to keep it so that users can see it at a glance and get meaning from it. If your sidebar is too massive that you can no longer get meaning from it, it's no longer useful. So in order to make it readable, see how you can quickly scan each of these, overview, getting started, and so forth. Um, in order to make it readable, you can shorten the nav titles. So while your, your official page might be getting started building widgets for system Z, uh, that doesn't scan so well in your sidebar. You can shorten that and, and still not lose out on your full page SEO and metadata and so forth that you, you would need for the official title. But um, as I was looking through some of the help content in, in the company I mentioned earlier, I noticed they had a lot of like really lengthy titles, and they were so long they were getting truncated, so you couldn't even see the whole title. And they would all start with these lengthy gerunds that made it difficult to, to really read and, and understand at a glance. So in addition to shortening it, consider getting rid of gerunds and using active tense, simple present tense. Um, Here's another example from another doc set. You can see that you can uh, you can quickly scan it and see what's there, and that's really the point of a hierarchy: um, this ability to take in the whole at a glance and gather some meaning from it. So, as some best practices for hierarchy, limit the navigation to about three levels. Uh, put it on the left usually. You can also put it on the right, but one, one of the sides is very common. In fact, I know there was a trend recently to put, uh, to get rid of that third pane because it looked somewhat dated, or that third column, and to put it along the top in these kind of uh, innovative drop downs from breadcrumbs. I just don't think that's very common. I think it confuses users. You want to align with industry standards that people are going to expect. Allow users to see the full navigation at a glance. Uh, this is this is one that's a little probably controversial, and I'd love to have more research. But right now, basically, a lot of times you you land on these sidebars, and they're accordions, so you can only expand one section at a time. Well, that's fine because it helps keep it small and concise. But what if you want to see what's in every section so that you can get a glance at the whole? The accordion feature really limits your ability to do that. Um, break up massive navigation into multiple menus. You don't want to have these giant massive sidebar. You might have several different sidebars relating to different product facets or different facets of your product. Um, and you need to allow the user to navigate from one menu to another. That's where it gets a little more sophisticated and where a lot of the help authoring tools kind of break down. Um, but anyway, however, whatever tool platform you're using, you should have a way to create multiple different help uh, sets and, and allow navigation from one set to the other. And then, oh, yeah, 
put page level navigation on the page, um, preferably on the right or in, in line. Uh, this is the mini TOC thing, uh, which I, I guess I do address here. Okay, see if we have any questions. Alright, we've got one right here. Filtering options for content display as well. I'm trying to think what exactly does that mean? Is that uh, like uh, faceted navigation that would allow you to select a facet like version and then the navigation filters down to that? If so, uh, sure. Now, um, actually I'm going to talk about that soon. This is where we get into five hat racks, which, okay, so there's some kind of history with five hat racks and the, I think, seminal uh, research around it used it as a metaphor. But, but five hat racks is the idea that you can organize content in five different ways. You can arrange it alphabetically. You can sort it by time. You can arrange it by location, by continuum or degree, like most uh, novice to advanced or something, and by category or likeness. Generally, documentation is grouped by category or likeness more than location, with the exception of context-sensitive help. And really, this last point is where you see a lot of writers, uh, or where you see most relevance to documentation. As an example, uh, check out this little graphic here. This is from the book. You can see they've got different monuments or buildings, skyscrapers, there we go. And you can organize the same group of skyscrapers in five different ways. Alphabetically, starting with the Canadian National Tower and ending with the World Trade Center. By time, by location, probably a more difficult one. Uh, by continuum, so maybe getting short to tall. Or category. Uh, yeah, so these ones are all similar in appearance or structure, and these are more similar in structure. So um, basically in documentation, uh, let me jump ahead there, there's kind of two, two, two uh, ways to describe this. User-centered documentation is organized by task, usually, whereas product-centered documentation is organized by tabs or screens. And in order to uh, make sense to the user, you want to choose the former, obviously. It's very difficult um, for a user who's unfamiliar with the user interface or how the screens are to really um, make sense of product-centered documentation. Now, this is easier to say than do because sometimes you have a screen and you want to describe all the features on the screen and they don't necessarily relate to what the user might specifically do. So this is a challenge. And then of course if you have context sensitive help where you click a help link on the page and you want to open up all the topics related to that page, you're kind of uh, being pushed and nudged towards more product centered documentation. So just keep in mind uh, the two and um, yeah, try to, try to choose the former. There's one uh, technique that's pretty common in usability circles called affinity diagramming. Uh, this is one technique to try to group things. This is, these are actually former colleagues that I had. Um, and they had this huge survey with hundreds of responses. And they wanted to group them into categories that made sense. So they put them on all these sticky notes, stuck them all the way around the walls in random orders, and then invited about 10 people to come in 
and group them logically by likeness. And so you'd have users move sticky notes and another user moves the same sticky note and they finally agree on an order that, that surfaces. I've never actually tried this with documentation, but it, it could be something that helps you establish a user-centered organization based on actual users and, and how they think. Um, anyway, just wanted to throw that in there. Now, faceted navigation. Somebody brought this up, and I do want to address it. Peter Morville, one of the, the experts on, on findability and taxonomy, says faceted navigation is arguably the most significant search innovation of the past decade. He said this in Search Patterns. And uh, this is a pretty strong statement. And for a number of years, I tried to implement faceted navigation, but really didn't make much progress in doing it. Uh, first of all, the tools really aren't there to do the facets. You pretty much have to have a custom implementation or plug into some other kind of framework. But second, documentation doesn't really have clear facets. Uh, when you go into a shoe store, there are clear facets of, do I want men's shoes, women's shoes, uh, basketball shoes, soccer cleats? Do I want size 12? Do I want color uh, red, blue? But with documentation, it's like, well, your facets are are kind of topic-based. So it doesn't really work as clear hinge points unless you have lots of different doc sets and you can divide them by version and operating system or by programming language. But if you do want facets, one practical way to implement them is through tags. So if you have a tag, like operating system, Mac or something, you could add that to one of your topics and then provide a grouping based on that tag. Um, I, I haven't really seen tags used successfully in help in a way that impressed me, so I just sort of add this as a footnote, but uh, generally um, the idea of organizing your content by likeness and category is, is the main driving principle here for the usability. Okay, let me just check the... Okay. By tags, you mean conditional text type tags? Uh, if you've ever just seen a WordPress blog and you've seen little tags on there, it's a keyword that acts as a link. When you click it, all the other topics that have that same keyword are listed on the page. So, yeah. Um, and different systems that implement that differently. I'm sure uh, in Flare you have a similar concept. You add tags to something, and then you can add a certain widget that will show all topics with that same tag. Tom? Yep. This is Barbara. Um, I believe that uh, 2015 version of RoboHelp allows you to set up a help deliverable and apply, I think the word is categories, but I'm not certain of the name, and if you apply those tags or selections to content, you can then, in the output, allow the user to click on categories to filter the content that displays based on the combination of filters they choose. Yeah. Well, good. Yeah. Um, like I said, I, I, I would love to see... To I would love to see an actual help system that used tags in a brilliant way that was really impressive. I really don't see it. I think yeah. what most people do is just create different outputs 
and keep things separated. I mean, tags would be pretty handy if all your stuff was in one big bowl of soup and you really needed sophisticated ways to keep it separated. I know that uh, like Fluid Topics, for example, they have some amazing stuff they do with, with uh, filtering, probably the best example. But uh, even so, like you really want every single version and every language and every every uh, operating system all on the same site, it, it puts a lot more pressure on your navigation to be more sophisticated and yeah. and robust. All right, I'm going to jump in. Oh. Responsive. The, the idea of responsive content. Isn't that part of that <clears throat> metadata that allows you to deliver just what the users uh, yeah, well, then you have to have the user logged in, and so you have some kind of profile that tells you what system they have, and then you need a content management system that delivers that, so you've, you're, you're already in a much more sophisticated system. And then, then you have things like search, right? A user searches. Now you've got to have a separate search index based on all of their metadata. It's like it's so much more complex that, that few people really are going to implement it well without... Yeah. Okay, thanks. Sure. All right. Um, and by the way, if you want more on faceted navigation, check out David Weinberger's books. He's got some brilliant books about this. And like conceptually, I'm in complete alignment. I just have never seen it applied really well to docs. All right. Now, here's a topic that is uh, pretty, pretty solid uh, advice that is easier to follow. Progressive disclosure. Layer information so that you don't present everything to the user at once. Make some information available only at secondary or tertiary levels of navigation. Um, just to give some more information on this, so th this is the idea that uh, you don't want to overwhelm a user, right? You, you've got maybe hundreds of topics, but if you presented all those topics to the user in one giant uh, navigation tree, it's paralyzing. You don't, a user doesn't need to know all that up front. Um, I, I think one design trend that I've seen that I think is just going in the wrong direction is when a navigation sidebar presents the mini, incorporates the mini TOC on the page so that now your navigation sidebar not only has every topic, but every heading within every topic. And it just becomes very difficult to, um, to, for a user to get going in that. In Jacob Nielsen's interaction design, he says he's really a big fan of progressive disclosure. He says it's the best tool so far. Show people the basics first, and once they understand that, allow them to get to the expert features. But don't show everything all at once, or you'll only confuse people with uh, confuse people, and they will waste endless time messing with features that they don't yet need. This is really difficult to kind of pull off, uh, right? Here's an example of a help center. Uh, they've got different groupings, and let's say you, you want to know more about timesheets. Well, you click that link, and then you're going to see all the topics about timesheets. Presumably, the ones shown here are the most popular. But that's one way of limiting the amount of information that you're exposing at the first level. If you ever do any kind of UX mockups or UI mockups with uh, with your help system, designers like to think in terms of levels. What do you see at level one? What do you see at level two? At level three, and level four? And uh, that kind of progressive information disclosure is something 
to keep in mind, especially with docs because we have so many different topics. Here's an example of progressive disclosure in the user interface. If you're in WordPress and you pull down their, their help drawer, at least it used to be this way, you could click a link and see information about it in a kind of summary form. And if you wanted more, then you click the link to go to the full page. But it's a way of presenting part of the info somebody needs. And of course, any context-sensitive help is kind of the same way. Another example is um, this Twitter organization. If you click any one of these links using Twitter, my account, fix a problem, then you'll see more topics related to those uh, groups. But the user, the, the, the authors don't present all the links to the user at once, right? It's like, you tell me what you want to know about, and I'm going to give you a little bit more information about that topic. All right, uh, no questions on that, I don't think. Again, um, it's so much more fascinating when you turn the lens of these seemingly basic principles onto your own help and try to see how, how they apply. Another one is performance load. The larger, more complex the system, the greater the strain on the user. And the greater the strain, the lower the user's success. In many cases, documentation that is too massive deflates the user from even trying at all. There was an article I really liked by Martin Fowler called The Almighty Thud. He talks about the sound that a big, thick user manual makes as it hits the table and strikes fear into the user's heart. It just kind of demotivates them. This is a comic an old colleague once drew. Here's the manual for your new software, all 16 volumes. Thanks, but I'll wait for the Reader's Digest version. All right, if you've got a very, very complex system, which a lot of us are documenting, you, your, your users are not going to have strong success if you just throw everything to them at once. Right? The, the larger and more difficult the task, the higher risk and chance that they're going to fail. So what do you do to help them not fail, to help them succeed in the face of such a such challenging sort of systems? Um, oh, actually, before I get to that, one more thing. This is called Moore's Law, not, not Moore's Law, Moore's Law. An information retrieval system will tend not to be used whenever it is more painful and troublesome for a customer to have information than for him not to have it, which is really way of saying uh, basically if <laughs> if it really pains the user uh, to have your information to, to acquire it the user is really not going to do it until it becomes so painful for the user not to have that information that they finally break down and decide to go into the help to get it um, so my strategy for trying to avoid this this performance load strain on the user is quick reference guides uh, instead of potentially uh, instead of eliminating this useful info provide a quick reference guide to help them get oriented quickly with minimal cognitive load and low cost now quick reference guides are basically they're like getting started guides uh, it's kind of the same category here but a quick reference will try to cover the whole guide in a compressed almost poetry like form like cliff notes or a cheat sheet, it will show the shape of your whole help content. And it's especially useful for lists of functions or classes and methods. Here's an example. This is from Shopify. They make a, a 
scripting language called Liquid. And here in this quick reference, you can see all the different parts of Liquid. You can see that there are template variables, there are filters, there are operators, and this, this overview helps you see the, the whole shape of the content and it, it helps pull things into place having this view. And it's very minimal. Each of these is a little expandable section and you, then you get a tiny snippet of information with a link to get more. Here's another sample. This is a getting started but uh, almost every good developer docs section has some kind of hello world tutorial getting started that pulls the user through the initial kind of how do you get going in the most minimal way and it's the same same concept you want to reduce the, the performance load so that the user doesn't have to create the whole challenging system from scratch now you can um, <clears throat> you can th these are two early quick reference guides I created once when I was first kinda getting into these uh, when I created these layouts I later greeked the text here so that I could display them uh, the product manager was so happy he was so happy that he he told me in a meeting when he was distributing these that he actually started crying a little bit because he felt that finally a writer got it, that people don't want long instructions. They want something simple, quick, easy in a two-page handout. Well, it's obviously a false idea that you can just get rid of the 200-page manual and get by with two pages. You know, it's this idea of simplicity that product managers would love to believe that they've built a product so simple you only need two pages of instructions. But um, even despite this, it's going to trick users mentally into getting into it. Um, people are much more likely to get into help when you give them this little toehold into it, foothold into the documentation. It's like when you're doing dishes at home, right? You've got this huge mountain of dishes and it's very deflating. Uh, but then you, you get through like a little part of them and then it's not so bad and then suddenly you find that you're just like in the, in the rhythm and before long you've actually done the whole pile. But it's, it's getting started. That's hard and that's what these, these things allow you to do. So there's lots of different layout options you can do and I actually have a post if you go to this with a bunch of ideas for layouts. Uh, magazines are great examples of uh, good attractive layouts you can implement. Okay. Let me check the chat questions. All right. Entry points. The entry point to your system should orient users and allow them to easily get started. Avoid barriers that block, confuse, or otherwise hinder the user's progress to their goal. And when I think of entry points, I like to think of train stations. This is Grand Central Station. When you go into Grand Central, it's this awesome, cool-looking room, but, but really the purpose is to route people to different locations. And that's what an entry point, your homepage, your help, should be. It should be like, hey, user, are you trying to implement this widget? Okay, go here. Oh, are you trying to do this? Go there. So uh, the, the homepage shouldn't be this general about the system, you know, this, as if they'd never even heard of what the, what the system they're using is and they want to learn about it from scratch. No, it's a routing page um, that helps users get to the place, to their destination quickly. A great example is with Microsoft Azure Docs. They've got little cards on the, on the homepage that let users go into different doc worlds. If you want to learn about Linux virtual machines, you click that first card and then 
and then the sidebar and all the content around there conforms to Linux virtual machines. Um, I think this trend is definitely becoming more apparent with Docs where you, where you see this kind of card-based entry point or at least lists of links and then the world um, conforms to that, that choice you made at the start. So again, think about your, your own doc homepage. How, what is the entry point for, for docs? Of course, you know, the entry point could be a page in the help, but eventually users will, will start here as well as they try to find where they're going. All right, another principle is called desire line. If you look at the common paths that users take through information and then make those paths more prominent and standard, uh, it will help your documentation be more user focused. And this principle comes from the idea of, um, or, or the idea that users will take the path that they want to take. Even if you have square corners in your park with beautiful sidewalks, people will make little paths that, that kitty corner, and that's how they will go because that's where they really want to go. Uh, in fact, I read in this book that Central Park in New York decided to first kind of put the park there, see where people were naturally going to walk, and then later cemented those pathways in, which is brilliant. Uh, so in your documentation, how does this apply? Well, look at your metrics. Uh, this is uh, Google Analytics from my own blog, just as a sample. I see that there are a lot of people, for example, checking out Swagger. They're interested in Swagger and quick reference guides. Well, what I should really do is make my homepage um, have quick links to those most common topics. And in our documentation at my work, we're in the process of implementing something like this. We, we found our top 10 topics, and we're going to put those on the homepage so that people can more easily find them, that they don't have to try to search just to, to locate those most desired topics. There's a rule that you've all heard called the 80-20 rule. 20% 20 of your effort results in 80% of the results. So let's say you have, a, uh, I don't know, 100, 100 topics. Um, 20 of those are going to be, uh, uh, my brain is now going, going backwards. 80% of your hits are going to come from 20% of your pages. So you want to take this 20% of your pages and make them front and center. They should, they should occupy it because that's what most people are looking for. 80% of the content we write is just like not even used, right? Of course, understanding what the 20% is and the 80% is is part of, part of the challenge. Oh, we got a question here. Let's check it out. What tools do you use for analytics? Um, at my work, we use Omniture or Adobe Analytics, and that gives you lots of robust configuration. Google Analytics is free. If you have other applications like uh, an app, there are other analytics tools like Flurry Analytics. Uh, there's Clickstream and, and quite a few different uh, analytics options. It's, it's actually quite difficult to interpret analytics. When you, when you open them up and you see that they have like a 70% bounce rate, which means people landed on the page, didn't go anywhere else, and then exited your site. Um, it's hard to really make sense of that. It's like, did they find the information they wanted, or was it a false sort of hit? Uh, time on page is most people spend two seconds per page, and then others spend five minutes, and it all gets averaged out. So making sense of analytics is another art. But basically, 
you will at least see what the top pages are in your analytics. You see what are what are the most popular pages. Everyone should know what the most popular doc pages are, and with that you can you can try to uh, um, make that desire line more formal. Uh, I'll just explain that. Okay, I have just a few more principles here. One is called wayfinding. Provide navigational signposts such as breadcrumbs or other workflow maps to help orient users as to where they are in a larger system. Don't assume that the user navigated to the current page following the path you intended. Now navigational signposts can come in, in the form in a lot of different forms in the design world. But in documentation, breadcrumbs are probably the most common or some kind of workflow map like the one I showed earlier. Here's an example from Facebook stocks. If you land on this page uh, from a Google search, it really helps to have this context to know uh, where where is this? How is this information contextualized here in the larger set? And the breadcrumbs do an ingenious job of this. They're not all that hard to implement and they provide a lot of payoff. Um, I think too often we sort of uh, think that users are, are navigating top-down. They're starting in the category, they're drilling into the folder, and then they're getting to the topic. So why would they need me to display a breadcrumb? But of course we know they come into the topics from searches, from links, from who knows where. They're clicking around, they're, in, they're landing there. They may not know if it's documentation, a blog post, a knowledge base article, some random user page. So providing this context is definitely welcome. It's something the usability people say is, is welcomed by users. It's not, it's not ever going to harm your usability. Um, there are different ways to implement this. Uh, yeah, and I think I won't dive into that more. Okay, two more principles. Users desire to be immersed in the application or system they're using rather than leaving the system to consult a separate external system for help. Allow users to stay immersed in the application context by bringing help into the application. This principle of immersion makes a lot of sense if you've ever been using a system and you're getting frustrated because you're not finding something. The idea of going out of that system into another helps uh, another system, a documentation system, to find your answer is immediately jarring. I want to stay in the place where I'm trying to complete my task. Don't make me go somewhere else and, and let me stay immersed and focused. Um, I once interviewed Mike Hughes uh, about, about what do we know from usability studies with help and he said the conclusion of most studies about how people use help is that they don't use help. They really don't want to go into the help system. So anything you can do to bring that help into the UI is welcome. Here's an example that you could implement uh, if you wanted to uh, do tooltips, for example. Very easy to bring that in. You can single source the information from your help, generate it out into a format that developers can consume. If you click this link, I've got a tutorial about how to do this using Jekyll that, and generate a JSON file and bring it in using JavaScript. I did it once. Um, give a, a developer a, a JSON file that had 30 or 40 different tooltips uh, and the UX person either used my sample JavaScript code or created their own and incorporated them and that way I could control all the tooltips in the same file that was sourced from the help and it was a lot of fun but, but the principle is uh, how can I move into the same space as my user 
how are you organizing your help? We'll organize it in the application. Have to remember, um, oh, there's a, a related law here called Fitz Law. The further a user must travel with their cursor, the less accuracy the user will have in reaching the target object, which is a really fancy way of saying that if if a user uh, has to go to a totally different system and, and click far away, they're probably not going to find exactly what they were looking for. Um, it's important to remember that much of a UI is text. So this is uh, from uh, some system. It's called Bjit. If you take away the text, this is what it looks like. There's almost nothing there. Uh, same with WordPress. Here's WordPress without text, and here's YouTube without text. I think too often we're sort of uh, under this idea that, that the, the interface and help are totally separate things, but uh, these textual, these user faces are textual domains, and uh, help belongs there. That's how people find and navigate things and so we should insert as much as we can um, in there for for uh, well not as much as we can but we we should not feel as if uh, it's not our domain it's definitely a domain where writers are welcome okay we are coming near the end this is the last principle forgiveness taking risks experimenting and exploring systems on their own helps users learn when users make errors during these activities, help guide them back on the right path. All right, so this also relates to the idea of immersion. You've got a user doing something. Let's say they're in the command line and they do something wrong. You want to provide information, help information in that same space that helps them correct. Here uh, in my Jekyll project, I have an incorrect parameter, and you can see here that it says, "Look, you've got the in, you've got the syntax wrong, buddy. Here's the valid syntax: param equals value, param equals value, and it's in this file. So now I don't have to leave my context. I can just fix it. I can stay right in this command line, and uh, trying to figure out where all these potential error points are, where you should implement forgiveness, can be really challenging. But you definitely want to find all the error messages in your system." Right, go down all these unhappy paths. Um, test everything yourself. That's the best way to, to find them. Throw in garbage data for parameters. Try to break it, see what happens, and expose these areas where people are going to uh, need forgiveness, and then try to provide information that's going to help them there. I saw a question come in. Also related, to, oh, what tools? No, that was already one we answered. Related to minimalism. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Minimalism, I think, often gets misinterpreted as just being really concise and brief when really it's helping the user jump into the task and, and not having to wade through a bunch of documentation, get them going, right? And so to facilitate that action-oriented mindset, you want to provide the documentation in the same space where they're doing those actions. All right, easier said than done, right? These design principles, I don't think there's anything here that is revolutionary or like incredibly clever and brilliant that you would never think yourself, but they're much harder to implement, right? You're battling timelines. You're trying to figure out how to even get the right information in the first place, much less how to integrate it into the right space for the user to find as they're trying things out, you know? 
But having this set of principles, uh, modularity, hierarchy, five hat racks, progressive disclosure, entry point, desire line, wayfinding, immersion, consistency, forgiveness, gives you a rubric or list of things you can analyze and assess your help against and, and see kind of how are you doing with user-centered documentation. All right, any questions? We've had some come in, but uh, if you have more that you'd like, go ahead and ask them now. Um, I'll point you to... Yes, we have a, okay. We have a question here. I'm going to have to repeat it for you. Okay. So she has a manual, a medical device with I, a I heard, manual. I heard. And there's, about, and there's about four pages of important warnings and things that relate to danger with the device. And it's the usual concept that it's like, I'm trying to figure out how to get the person to read it. It's, it's putting it, most manuals of this type, they put it in front, they sing it. Like, like how to get people to read it. Actually operate it. Like put it up front? Put it in line. It's going to be well, print. It is a print guide. I think that very so okay. Yeah. So about those those little uh, initial sections that tell you this icon means danger and this means a uh, tip and so forth. You know, I really think um, the kind of the icon icons and symbols that you use and this is actually another principle in the design book on I can't remember what it's called icons or symbols but you should use the icons that are globally universally understood and if it's not immediately clear that like a danger with a red exclamation point you know means warning risk you know a high high chance of failure then you should use a different icon set that you don't have to explain. Now, you may be under constraints, maybe required legally to do this, but in general, uh, use icons that makes immediate sense. And one way that you can find out what icons are the universal symbols is go to something called thenounproject.com. Search for what you're looking for. Like, for example, let's look at this. I was doing this a while back for... Uh, we we're trying to find an icon for um, voice-enabled text. Um, so, <clears throat> anyway, if you if you type in something like danger, you're going to see how different people have represented danger in in icons, and you'll find very common ones like uh, either the lightning bolt or something else, but you can get a sense for, okay, what is kind of the universal symbol for what I'm talking about? And then, then you shouldn't have to explain it. So I think uh, that's how I would approach it. Um, and, and if you do have to explain it, um, yeah, uh, you know, the front is not, it's not going to be that bad because it's a, it's a standard that most people do, right? So people expect that kind of thing. It's not going to surprise anybody. Thank you. Somebody asked another Thank question. You. You mentioned knowledge a couple of times. How do you define a knowledge item versus other types of documentation? I think I referred to a knowledge base type article, uh, something that's a, a quick explanation of some technical 
difficulty that's outside the realm of docs. There's actually another design principle that I don't think I included here, but somewhere else it, it's, uh, um, I, I'm trying to remember the exact name, but it's basically the shape of a bell curve. You want to have your documentation hit the mainstream of what most people are trying to, to accomplish. If you fill your docs with a bunch of edge cases and fringe scenarios and one-off quirks that only a small, small minority of people are going to run into, you end up diluting your information so that people can't really find what they're looking for because they're encumbered by so many, uh, so much information that only applies to such a small number of people. So what do you do with that info? You don't, you don't get rid of it, but move it into some kind of knowledge base that allows people to just search for that and, and surface that content that way. Um, okay, looking forward to recording to share with non-tech writer boss. If you can get a non-tech writer boss to listen to an hour recording, great. <laughs> Anyway, uh, let me just point you to um, one other source. If you're, if you're really into this topic um, and you want more information on it, come up to my site and uh, I'm starting to get some more information here on user-centered documentation. And I've actually got some more principles here that cover creation of content, like readability, legibility, uh, signal to noise ratio and so forth so you can learn more about it and i'd love to hear your feedback feel free to get in touch with me if you come to uh about contact you can reach out to me in any well don't call me i'm going to take my phone number off here but feel free to reach out to me via email or slack um i'd be happy to chat with you thank you so much have a great evening i know it's valentine's day i can't imagine uh, yeah, too many people <laughs> Yeah, and I'm sure you've got plans, so uh, I'll, I'll sign off here and, and let you go. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Tom. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Bye-bye. Have a great evening. Yep, you Bye. too.